Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. And today we're talking all about transformation. You know, I've noticed, as many of you probably have too, that people are switching jobs and even careers like never before right now. And this is creating a lot of uncertainty for companies who are having to reimagine really from the ground up how to manage this transformation in the workplace. So today we're speaking with two leaders who have transformed themselves and their companies. Jen Fisher is the Chief Wellbeing Officer at Deloitte, and she's the best-selling author of Work Together Better and the host of the Work Well podcast. Welcome, Jen. Thanks for having me. And also joining us is Karen Fang, Managing Director and Global Head of Sustainable Finance at Bank of America. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Michael. All right. Well, let me start with you, Jen, a chief well-being officer. This is a new thing. Tell me what that's all about. How I became a chief well-being officer was really um, the intersection of uh, personal necessity and a need that we saw in our business at the time. And so if I you know, go go back about seven years. I um, I've been at Deloitte for twenty years, but about seven years ago, I found myself um, completely burnt out to the point um, of you know needing to take take a leave of absence. I was struggling with my physical health as well as my mental health, um, and burnout wasn't something that was talked about in the in the workplace seven years ago. Um, it's only been in the last few years, and certainly in the last eighteen months or so that. Burnout has become a, a regular topic of discussion um, at the at the at the boardroom and executive level uh, table, and so um, it wasn't something that I reached out and asked for help on. As a matter of fact, I processed it as failure because I looked around and nobody else seemed to be burning out. I took time off. I had to get healthy and well. Quite frankly, I had to redefine the role that work played in my life and what well-being meant to me. I was very narrowly defining it as I got to the gym for an hour a day and that didn't matter if I got two hours of sleep or <laughs> or not. Um, and so, um, and so I had to redefine that for myself and in coming back to work and meeting with my leaders and my mentors, trying to figure out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to focus my time and energy. I was actually going to resign from Deloitte because I wanted to focus on helping others not get to where I got in order to be successful in life. Um, and it was one of my mentors who said, well, if you need this, then why doesn't everybody else need it? And so that sent me on the journey of putting together a business case at the time. And also at the time, you know, business and the way we were working was really shifting. Technology was starting to really embed itself into every aspect of our life and our work. Um, and we were starting to work out of the office a lot more and starting to kind of see um, some of the, the the impacts of, you know, being constantly connected to our technology devices into our work and, and what was happening there. And so there was this kind of perfect storm, if you will, of, of things that kind of came together um, in particular for us at Deloitte that, that created the, the need for um, or the platform for a role like mine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and Karen, your, your career transformation is a little bit different than that, I imagine, but also creating something within a big organization that may not have existed before. Tell me about leading sustainable finance at Bank of America and how you evolved into that role. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I think it's a, a you know interesting journey because I've been with a bank for 11 years and I was always running 
structure finance, sales and trading roles in global markets. So from a technical standpoint, my role didn't change that much. If I used to do all these things, I'm still doing structure financing, investing and advisory. However, from a role focused perspective, absolutely shifted, right? Mm-hmm. So if I was looking at stocks and bonds and munis and you know infrastructure, but now I'm really focused, laser focused on projects that are aligned with the UN Sustainable Development Goals and really focus on two things, environmental transition to a zero carbon economy, as well as social inclusion, everything that used to be funded by the government, right? Whether it's healthcare, education, racial and gender equality, and so on and so forth. So to actually put a laser focus on private sector capital deployment for things that are considered sort of high overarching goals, but not really affecting the finance sector day to day, is essentially why the role was created by our chairman CEO, Brian Moynihan, about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an interesting, Karen, in your world, it's maybe this transformation is more measurable, you know, because you're working with really measurable, you know, things. And, but you're still faced with the uncertainties around investing in new spaces and reallocating capital where it hasn't been before. I mean, this can be hard enough with friends trying to split a restaurant check. I imagine working across a whole industry trying to do this is really challenging. What are the techniques that you use when working with colleagues who may be reticent to this change or looking at things differently? I think the first thing we always say is, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good, right? There are a lot of things that we need to do and we are evolving, you know, hopefully in the next two and a half decades and changing the way we live and move and eat and consume, uh, you know, fundamentally differently from the last two and a half centuries since the industrial revolution, because these transitions need to happen at a much faster pace. It's not just reticent to change. I think there are a lot of people that don't know how to change. So it's really about a collective reskilling. And then really this common understanding that we all need to leave the world a better place for our offspring, our next generations. And really to appeal to the human nature, right? Because business tends to be very technical and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of faceless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, and I imagine, uh, Jen, in, in, in your world, this sounds really familiar, but it's, it's a really different space. Well, how, how are you bringing these ideas around well-being and around change into the organization? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because what Karen said about, you know, bringing it down to the human level absolutely resonates. I think when you think about well-being, everybody, regardless of who they are or what role they have in an organization, has a definition of what well-being means to them. We as an organization understand the underlying connection between high performance and well-being, because I think that that's a myth that a lot of organizations historically have bought into, right? A lot of the things that I heard in the early days, well, if I give so-and-so the flexibility to go to yoga, and this is, you know, might seem like a trite example, but it's not. If I give so, you know, if I give Karen the flexibility to go to yoga at two o'clock, what happens if I need her at 225? Well, Karen's going to be back and online from yoga at you know, 305 or 310, and she's going to be happier, more engaged, do better work, you know, and so drawing those parallels of, you know, or or making those connections for people about, you know, when you give people autonomy and agency to make decisions to take care of themselves, 
the way that they show up and the work that they do, the way they treat, you know, their coworkers, the creativity, the innovation, all of that actually goes through the roof and it, and it benefits and impacts the bottom line of an organization. You know, it, it, what I see as a thread through the conversation is around the culture and the values that are driving the decision-making, whether it's around sustainability or it's around well-being. And Karen, tell me what that looks like inside Bank of America, inside your organization of how the value, the core values are disseminated and communicated to the organization. I think that's a really great question, Michael. I think the cultural change uh, will have to accompany a lot of these you know, environmental, you know, transition that we talked about, the societal inclusion change. It's a mindset change. It's a cultural change. And, and that really takes, you know, all of us to, to accomplish. And I think in a large organization like Bank America, I think we have 210,000 people, you know, the communication and setting the tone from the top down uh, is incredibly important. Unfortunately, unfortunately for a lot of us, you know, the organizations are managed from the top. And if you want something drastic and transformational that has to happen from the top, then it takes relentless communication and repetition. We have a placement at the bank and we repeat over and over. And once we set the sustainable finance strategy about a year ago, net zero by 2050, deploy $1.5 trillion capital by 2030. We repeat probably hundreds of times a month such that 210,000 employees and our clients and our partners and supply chain get that. Net zero means a lot to us understand that, right? So I think it takes repetition, then it takes relentless focus. And that's what we talked about before. You know, I'm curious because if that change is coming from the top, and I think so many of us have seen this in our organizations that that's where change happens. How do you influence it if you're not at the top? I mean, this is really career advice I'm looking for, I guess. (laughs) But I mean, how do you do that, Karen? I, I, we actually have a pretty democratic process in terms of getting grassroots ideas and we have town halls, we have, you know, anonymous, you know, mailboxes and people can submit ideas. I do think you have to get the best ideas and brightest ideas and, you know, from the organization and you have to embrace it. And when you submit an idea, you know, you always want to make sure it's beneficial for the organization. Otherwise, no one is going to really take up your idea. And once you have that, you find a couple of sponsors that have the the, you know, they have the ears of the top of the house and you kind of go with the sponsors, you convince them. And so this penetration from top down, I think the idea penetration can happen from bottoms up, but it really has to be very impactful in terms of that touch point. And that has to be the, the touch point with the sponsorship, with the political capital within the large organization. And you sort of convince them and then the ideas get, you know, it's actually surprising how flat the organization can be once you find the right people advocating the, the right idea. You know, and Jed, I'd love to revisit your story a little bit about being ready to leave and then turning that into this whole new role. Uh, you know, there's a situation where, you know, you found the right influence and you found the right relationships to make that happen. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is something actually that a, a colleague of mine and I wrote an entire book on <laughs> called <laughs> called work better together and mm-hmm. one of the areas that is that is not often thought about or talked about when it comes to our own uh, personal health and and well-being but there is you know so much research behind it is you know relationships the the strength of our personal relationships and our and our 
um, in our life are actually the number one influencer of our long-term health and happiness. And there's several studies, but in particular, an 83-year-old study uh, that's been going on for 83 years from Harvard, the study of human health and longevity. And so if you think about um, working adults, you know, we spend the majority of our, you know, our days during the week at work. And so, um, you know, having the right networks and the right relationships in the workplace, when you talk about career advice, um, is, is incredibly powerful, not only for the organization and, you know, the, the loyalty and, and innovation and work product and work quality and productivity, you know, people want to work with people that they like, um, and they get, a, get along with, but, you know, creating these networks and these, these relationships in the workplace, um, you know, are, are good for the, for, for the individual too. And so when people tell me, wow, you've been at Deloitte for 20 years, what's it, what is it that keeps you at Deloitte for so long? It's the relationships with the people that I have. Right. And so that's just a critically com important component of the workplace. And one that I think has been, you know, sorely missing for so many of us during this pandemic, right? And so um, I don't think there's any question about kind of the value of social connection and, and human connection, but where the magic really happens in most organizations is actually at the team level. And it doesn't require a ton of investment of, of money or time, quite frankly, but it's about you know, authentic human connection and having conversations with the colleagues that I work most often with, because of the, those are the ones that have the biggest impact on my well-being as to what do we want our team behaviors and norms to be. And so we have our teams at Deloitte talk about those things and decide as a team, what do, we, what do they want it to look like? Because that's the most controllable. You can do things at an organizational level, macro level, and you should. Um, but every team is different and every team is going to have different needs based on client needs, depending on their work, the type of work they're doing. Do they need to be co-located? Co can they be more hybrid or more remote? Um, and those are decisions that we like to give our teams the ability to um, set their own norms around. Okay. Changing gears a little bit. Um... I wanted to talk about big transformations that you guys are seeing in both of your industries, and maybe there's some crossover between that. Karen, let me start with you. What do you see coming? I know sustainability and climate change obviously are you know big transformations you're working on, but what do you see coming in the next five years, say, that's maybe that's going to surprise us? Well, I think from what I do, and I see where the capital is going. And fortunately, unfortunately, everything does run on money. So mm -hmm. I, I, we do, we do, we do see what things are being built and what things are going to come online, a little bit, you know, with better visibility. Um, I would say what's going to surprise all of us is just on clean energy and power. How much that's really going to take foot, uh, take hold in our lives. Uh, in the next five to 10 years. And you probably saw some ambitious announcements from the government in terms of you know 50% clean energy by 2050. But in the next five to 10 years, you're really going to see a lot of solar power, a lot more offshore wind farms. I think you're going to see a lot more electrical vehicles. You're going to see people demanding carbon labels on their food, just like people demand calorie counts on their food. I think the human consumption uh, of food and, and goods is really going to change because our awareness and consciousness is in really increasing day by day. Um, I think from a social infrastructure standpoint, everyone is going to really demand equity, racial, gender, climate equity, you name it. And I think that awareness and that intersection between environment and society is going to really make all of us focus on these things. It's not just a nice to have, it's a must have. 
So, you know, you're going to go from, oh, let's behave better to what can we do? Changes need to happen now. What are the things that we, we need to invest in today? So in 5, 10, and 20 years, it really changes the planet. So uh, I'm super excited. I think there's a lot of technology transformation that's going to happen. I do think there's a lot of human evolution that's going to happen as well. And Jen, what, what, what do you see as the big transformations uh, around well-being and generally sort of work culture coming up in the next five to 10 years? You know, I, I don't know that that five to 10 years, I mean, I think it's happening now. I think mm-hmm. the, the great resignation um, in, in some form or fashion or in a lot of form or fashion is is that the workforce um, is demanding a different and a better way. Um, and they want to work for organizations and leaders that care about them as a as a whole person um, in in and outside of of the the job. Um, you know, it's interesting. I had a, a colleague um, that that challenged me the other day on the the term work life integration, and they said, "Why don't we call it life work integration? Why do we always put work first? <laughs> and I think that that is an, an incredibly insightful question around you know people kind of stepping back and saying, work is really important to me, but work is part of my overall thriving life. Work doesn't always come first. Um, And so we have a workforce that is demanding something different from their employer and they want an employer that cares for them as a whole person. Um, And and I think they want an employer that, you know, the, the workplace in many ways has become unkind. So I think what the fourth industrial revolution has done in a lot of ways is gotten humans to actually compete with the technology. And we need to stop competing with the technology because we're never going to be able to work 24-7 and we shouldn't want to work 24-7. We should want to do the things that only humans can do. And that those are the things that we've long talked about as soft skills, but they're not soft. They're human skills. They're essential skills. And I believe they're the skills of leadership of the future. And those are compassion and empathy and creativity and being able to solve really complex problems as a collective group and collaboration. And so I hope that we see a shift from our technology using us (laughs) to us actually using our technology that really truly brings humanity into the workplace and that perhaps we're actually working less and not more um, because we have figured this out and we are able to have careers um, as part of an overall thriving life and not have um, this culture of workism that has really um, kind of bubbled up over the last 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely changing for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Uh, I don't think but, it's going to take five to 10 years. <laughs> no, and who knows what's going to happen. Hard to look on that time frame. Okay. As a sort of the, the last piece I'd love to do is maybe to have you guys ask each other a question. I mean, so Karen, is there something that you want to ask Jen? Jen, so I would love to know, um, you know, do you think a chief well-being officer being very uh, distinct from human capital management um, forces within each large organization? Do you feel that is something that you you see kind of other firms adopting? If not, you know, what would you tell the head of human resources at each institution or corporation? that the benefit of having this very important role kind of separated from the rest of the human capital functions? Yeah, so, um, you know, we're, 
we're starting to see more and more chief well-being officers, but I, I would agree with you. I would still say that I, I believe that it is few and far between, and um, there's a lot of differentiation um, in, in what the role actually does and what the role actually uh, means at different organizations. But I, you know, what I would say to HR execs is, you know, if if you and and it kind of execs across the board, quite frankly. So if you employ human beings, <laughs> um, you we all need to do more to care for the well being of our our workforces. And I think the pandemic has proven that we need to kind of move beyond um, what I would categorize as standard health and safety of our workforce and actually continue to build workforces that are truly resilient because, um, you know, there might not, and let's hope there's not a global pandemic, but we are living in a world that is constantly disrupted (laughs) and the disruption is going to continue regardless of what the disruption is. And, um, you know, not having a workforce that has, you know, resilient capabilities is actually a huge risk to your organization. Um, And I think many organizations have seen that during the pandemic. And so I would actually argue that, um, you know, programmatically, um, you know, the HR can be the engine of workforce well-being, but every C-suite executive and every leader of people right now and in the future actually does have a role and a responsibility to care for the well-being of the people that work for them. Yeah. So Karen, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, the the kind of the human element and the human impact of sustainability and kind of what you see as the future there, because in, in, in particular, in terms of metrics, because I think a lot of the sustainability metrics, at least that I'm aware of, don't actually talk about human sustainability, but their environmental and client climate and, and all of those things are important because if we're destroying the planet, doesn't really matter what the human sustainability piece is. But where do you see the future of that? Because I see a really strong kind of emerging connection between you know, human sustainability and the impact of of other sustainability metrics. Yeah, Jen, thank you. You know, I think the metrics, you're right. A lot of the metrics around E, S, and G is really around representation, right? You know, your carbon footprint, so it's sort of like a fact. And it's a lot of numbers. And when it comes to people, it's really about representation. So what is your diversity uh, score? How many, you know, diverse board members do you have on your board? And what's your, what's your workforce, you know, make of men versus women and people of color versus, you know, not people of color, but it doesn't have this well-being and, and, <laughs> and, and, and this balance metric, if you will, or integration metric. And I think that's where the, the ESG metrics to your point is evolving very fast, right? Yeah. We, we take a leadership in this, you know, with the World Economic Forum, with a lot of accounting firms. I think the ESG metric space is going to evolve very quickly because people need those to be more meaningful and all mm-hmm. the companies need to disclose the same. So we then can compare and contrast and put, you know, a little bit light on where things collectively need to be addressed. So I think that component is not there. You're absolutely right. And I think the, the morale, productivity, well-being, health, mental and physical, all of those things do show up in the bottom line. And I think that direct evaluation and the methodology of it 
needs to evolve very quickly. So I think we have a lot of work to do together. I'm looking forward <laughs> to joining this journey with you. Uh, that sounds great. I was just going to say, I think we found something that we can go tackle together <laughs> with Absolutely. all of our spare time, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Totally agree. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And Jen, thank you as well. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Thanks for joining us today. That was Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer at Deloitte, best-selling author of Work Better Together and the host of the Work Well podcast. And Karen Fang, Managing Director, Global Head of Sustainable Finance at Bank of America. If you want to learn more about their journey, go to salesforce.com slash blog slash vantage dash point. That's salesforce.com slash blog slash vantage dash point. Thanks for listening today. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. <laughs>